Greetings, brethren. Happy Feast of Tabernacles. I hope you have all had uh, safe travels and are having a, a joyous time uh, here at God's Fall Festival season. And uh, just a, a wonderful thing we get to picture here together as uh, we come together at this time. So thankful to have God revealing His truths and His plan of salvation through the holy days. You know, back uh, six months ago, roughly, when we were celebrating Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, and then on through Pentecost, and then now within the last couple of weeks, being able to uh, picture the few upcoming events of the Feast, uh, that the Feast of Trumpets pictures, that the Day of Atonement pictures, and now finally here at the Feast of Tabernacles. And th this progress that we have been along during this time, as we've seen God work with us as people who are called out of this world, granted even his Holy Spirit, that by the time we get to what the Feast of Trumpets pictures, we are picturing us then, you know, being resurrected as spirit beings, as you hopefully have reviewed in 1 Corinthians 15, and certainly can go back and check uh, at other times, where we are no longer flesh, but we're resurrected as spirit. And now Satan has been put away, and here we are at the festival that pictures the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you, hopefully... God willing, if we are, again, going through this entire process and God's completing that good work in us, it's so that we can be here as kings and priests. As a sure, a familiar scripture to start with today is in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. This new song being sung before the Lord uh, that starts in verse 9, but we'll read verse 10 where it says, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Such a powerful, simple scripture that lets us know what our roles will be in the kingdom of God. That Jesus Christ will be the king of kings at the top of the government of God. That King David will be over the tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles under him over each one of the tribes of Israel. But so many other positions over the Gentile nations underneath uh, David and the twelve apostles being filled in by those resurrected saints, those spirit beings, as we pictured and as we talked about during the Feast of Trumpets are now kings and priests. And critically, what makes this verse so intriguing is that they're reigning on the earth. Such a powerful rebuke to those who ignore the holy days and want to just imagine that people are off in heaven and that is what happens to you when you die. But instead we find that here God is letting us know it will be on the earth. On the earth. The question I'd like to have for us to sort of consider today, at least in part, because there could obviously be many messages on this, is how would you define your rule as a king or your you know, instruction as a priest? How would you do that? You are now a spirit being. And so what would we say could summarize the nature of your rule? Unfortunately, when we look around human governments today, and frankly, if you study most of them from the last 6,000 years, sometimes you might come up with words that summarize them like corruption, uh, ineptness, um, 
I, other other negative words that just uh, cruelty for some, unfortunately, to to the point that sometimes we look back and we we hope to find good leaders in history when they get a handful of things right, when they might be at least a kind ruler, uh, or maybe they they practice nepotism. Um, but at least they allow something good, you know. <laughs> and so we always have to take some of the good with the bad. But now you get to picture yourself as a spirit being where God has perfected your character and made you spirit. And so for those of you who know one of my favorite scriptures, it's not going to surprise you too much. In fact, even the title of today's sermon will be Power, Love, and a Sound Mind. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, where we see that scripture that describes the Holy Spirit. And it's a spirit that, again, dominates some of the holy days. It's one of the main themes that we talked about back on Pentecost, the spirit being poured out on God's church, and how we have to use that spirit to help convert ourselves in this life. That all of the efforts for the days of unleavened bread will be pretty meaningless if you're not using God's spirit. To help you do that. And then, of course, to what we came to in the Feast of Trumpets, where God's Spirit is us. You're no longer flesh. You are now God's Spirit. And here we find these three definitions, perhaps technically a fourth as well here, because it starts off in verse 7, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, where it reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, one that I'm not going to comment on as much today. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and a sound mind. Now, what I would like to do today is to use those three descriptions of God's Spirit and show that how they help us understand our role as kings and priests in the kingdom of God. That you will be a king and a priest, ruling with power, ruling with love, ruling with a sound mind. And one of the themes that you'll notice throughout, and I want to mention it now because I might forget to mention it in every scripture we see it, but it's no surprise that the Feast of Tabernacles, why do we do this? Why do we have this power, this love, this sound mind? Is to be able to teach the human beings on the planet at that time to fear the Lord. We will display power, to help people fear the Lord. We will show godly love, not the world's definition of love, but godly love to help people fear the Lord. We will not only rule with a sound mind, we'll be encouraging people to have a sound mind so that they can learn the fear of the Lord. A lesson that hopefully we are learning while we keep the feast during this age and we will have the opportunity to help others to learn in the kingdom to come. Spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now we'll start with power, but we might also quickly remember where are we at? Or perhaps not us, because within God's church, we are hoping that we will be in that first resurrection. We are hoping we will be spirit beings, but what about everybody else. What about all the carnal human beings who are out there? Now, I do not want to take a huge amount of time to review everything about the 
that the Feast of Trumpets pictures. But you might go back and review those trumpet blasts that are described in the book of Revelation. And then uh, the bowls that are poured out afterwards. You're talking about a world that is in ruins. And humanity that has... (laughs) Sometimes the word is decimated, right? You might have heard that word used before. But if if we're technical about that word, deca is, you know, the, the, the Latin root for ten. You know, or a decimate was something that the Roman legions, and I think other militaries at times did this too, where a punishment for a legion who retreated was that you'd get guys into groups of ten, you'd have them all number off one through ten, then you'd draw a number out of there, and whatever number gets drawn, that guy is supposed to be killed by the other nine guys in his group. And so a legion would be punished for their cowardice by being decimated, losing a tenth, losing one out of ten. Now, this is almost the opposite of that. When we talk about the end of the age, what percent of mankind is left at this point? We know that the death total is far more than 10% of the Earth's population. Uh, the, 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 the plagues and, and the the, the uh, things that are talked about in Revelation are at bare minimum. You, you know, some of those, so, some individually talk about wiping out a third of mankind. Some just individually. It potentially could even be talked about as practically a reverse decimation, where maybe only one out of ten survives. And I'm not sure what the Latin word for nine is. Spanish is what? Nueve. So a nuance. Anyway, I'm not going to come up with a new word for you about what 90% fatalities mean. But that seems to be at least be more in the ballpark than a decimation. Israelite nations have completely collapsed. And the survivors are in concentration camps. The Gentile nations have also largely collapsed but might still retain some semblance of, of uh, strong men, authority figures, and so on. Uh, it, it's hard to say with certainty what is going on with Gentile nations, but we do know that somehow Egypt, Assyria, Gog, Magog, these, these nations are all mentioned in various prophecies as having some type of functioning civil apparatus, at least in part, during the kingdom. But what they look like <laughs> at that point and what, you know, how, how many are left and so on, you're just talking about a world in ruins, a, a world that's been completely shattered. And I mention all of that because, again, these are the groups of people that you and I are given the task of instructing in the fear of the Lord. We are instructed to use power love, and a sound mind to try to help people to learn the fear of the Lord. So now let's finally jump in. I mentioned, well, we'll, again, we'll take them in order. And I feel like the the sequence that's given to us here, the inspired sequence of 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, uh, can lend itself to maybe giving us a potential sequence for how we would use these different attributes of God's spirit in his kingdom. And so we will start with power first. Power, unfortunately, has been so misused over the last 6,000 years. But Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, 
lets us know that part of our calling, part of being a king or priest, is to have this rod of iron that Jesus Christ describes as he's talking to the church in Thyatira. This is Revelation 2. Of course, he starts talking to the church back in verse 18. But we'll take a look primarily at the promise that is offered to them uh, for overcomers. This starts down in verse 26, Revelation 2 and verse 26. Where it says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. That you will have power over the nations. And you notice how, uh, how he describes that in verse 27 is that he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I have also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Power over the nations. A power to, to smash rebellion. Now, you might think about your human fleshly power today and how completely insufficient it is to do anything on a national scale. Now, I am recording this several months before the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I'm speaking today, I do not know exactly what is going to happen between Russia and Ukraine. By the time you watch this, you might have a far better idea of what has actually happened than I certainly do today. But I mention that because... If I was to finish this sermon right here and drove to the Charlotte airport and could get on an airplane and fly out to the border of Ukraine and Russia, well, it's been nice knowing you. That's pro- unless God protects me, my flesh is not going to accomplish anything. It can be awful, you know, uh, uh, dreamy to have these superhero movies uh, where we can see like, well, maybe I'd go and I would be the Iron Man or Batman or Superman or Captain America and I would go and I would say, no, I would most likely simply be shot and I would be another casualty of what at this point appears to be a coming conflict. But now we take a look at what Christ promises. Power over the nations. Now suddenly it's like if I if I if I was that if I was a spirit being and, and told go there and take care of that to have the power of a spirit being that first off I don't even have to go to the airport because I can move by the speed of thought and put myself right there despite the fact I've never been there and uh, you know would probably have to look at a map to make sure I know where I'm going at this point. Uh, you know, ideally trust the pilot, but we would be taking a look and saying, okay, I can just think and I'm there. And then I have power over the nations, the likes of which God alone has at this point, the Father in Jesus Christ, but he plans to share with overcomers. Now, You might have also noticed, if your Bible is anything like mine, that verse 27 starts off with italics because Jesus Christ is quoting from the Old Testament. Now let's take a look at that passage in the Old Testament because it's back in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. And we get a little bit more information about this power. What does this power look like? What does this power manifest itself like? 
And we'll get to the specific quote here in a second, but let's go ahead and actually just begin at verse 1. Rev- uh, Psalm, Psalm 2, and verse 1. Where the question is asked, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the eternal and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, I'm not sure that's necessarily what's going on between uh, uh, Russia and the Ukraine here uh, in early 2022. I'm not sure they have an anti-God uh, meanings to their politics, but this is sometimes what people think. This is perhaps how some worldly rulers will react. Even when Jesus Christ has come back, even when the kingdom is present, that does not mean the entire world is converted immediately. It seems there, there's going to be a reason that God promises a rod of iron. He doesn't give us a rod of iron because we have no need for it. And that need is to deal with ungodly nations who are suppressing their people. Because one of the main hurdles or main stumbling blocks, perhaps, to people being able to learn the fear of God is unrighteous government. And although God has returned to set up righteous government, it's not everywhere at once. It starts in Jerusalem. But we have a chance to break these nations. In fact, you notice how God responds to this rebellion, this uh, uh, <laughs> these rulers of the earth setting themselves up. You know, God in verse 4 says, He who sits in heavens shall laugh. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And you might notice the context of this verse is God the Father giving this rod of iron primarily to Jesus Christ. But as we saw back in Revelation 2, that power of the nations is promised to us in part as well. But you might have noticed there in verse 4, what is God's reaction? What type of power do you have in this situation? That a rebellious nation is something to be laughed at. Something to be held in derision. And for better or for worse, I know that one of the times I have felt this in my own personal life, because obviously I'm not dealing with nations primarily, but I do have four children. And I think most likely all of them, I, I certainly know at least a couple of them, at times have tested out their voice by telling mommy or daddy no. Uh, and sometimes it's because you have started maybe asking your children questions. And maybe even there's times you ask a question where they can answer no, and that's fine. And then they, they, they like that. They like that sometimes you can say, oh, would you like to have this, yes or no? And they say, oh, no. Okay, well, that's fine. 
And that, that's, that's perfectly fine to do as a parent. But then one of the temptations for the kid is to then to test out the power of the word no in a different situation. Because, again, at least a couple of my kids, there's been a scenario where you might say, go clean up your room. Now, I have not <laughs> asked a question at this point, and yet still the child has found this word, and so they say, no. <laughs> and as a parent, sometimes the temptation is to simply laugh, right? The temptation is to just laugh, to hold my child in derision and be like, oh, oh, no, 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 sweet son of mine. That room will be tidied. The only question is how much pain you are willing uh, to endure. How many timeouts or spankings or whatever are you going to need to endure to get this done? But that room is going to be cleaned. This was not a yes or no question. You can try to plot a vain thing against your parent here. But if anything, you probably drew more attention to me making sure this happens than less by telling me no. And then depending on the kid depends on how the story ends in that particular uh, situation. But sometimes you do. You almost think about the power discrepancy. Where, like I mentioned, if, if I was to go to some, uh, maybe, maybe we use a different example. What about a place like North Korea? Go ahead and go teach the people of North Korea here in 2022 to fear the, the fear of the Lord. Teach them that. Because... In a human fleshly perspective, you'll be arrested, you'll be tortured, and most likely executed. The power discrepancy is, 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 is insane. It's, it's almost indescribable. And then suddenly, here we are as spirit beings, and these promises are coming to us, and the power is just shifted dramatically the other way to suddenly where one soldier with an itchy trigger figure, could end my life so easily. And suddenly we're talking about a kingdom where <laughs> there could be a hundred soldiers, a thousand soldiers, men shooting nuclear missiles, and you are a spirit being, and it's worth laughing at. The, the, the difference in power that is available to us at that time. And I wonder sometimes what would that mean? I mean, do you, do you just, do you, uh, the power of God, I, it's, do, you, do you take a gun and just allow the atoms of the gun to just collapse into individual atoms and so it's almost like evaporating in their hands? Uh, do, you, do you just kind of freeze their finger, you know, so that they, they, they cannot move their body uh, for that second? I mean, do you, do, uh, how many different ways can you solve that problem when you have the power of God, the power to split the Red Sea, the power to make the sun stand still in the sky, the power to heal leprosy, the power that he displays in so many stories in his scriptures, and you have access to that power, and somebody is going to oppress other human beings. And you have a chance to stop it. And the, it's so wonderful to think you actually have options. As opposed to, we have to just keep praying for it to happen. For, for Christ to come back. Now he has. And now that power is available. Now thankfully, we, did, we didn't quite finish uh, chapter 2 here. We might read verse 10 through 12. Because just like dealing with my children, God's trying to give these human beings a chance. 
He's trying to give these leaders a chance where he says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. There is a chance to instruct people. You know, it, we, we'll have that rod of iron. But in many ways, again, it's like talking to your kid. If I tell my kid to go clean the room and they say no, that probably doesn't mean I immediately grab the rod of iron, you know, for it. But I might say, whoa, think it through. How do you want this scenario to play out here? Because you can say, sorry, daddy, I'll actually go clean my room now. Or we can start having some consequences to this. And Christ is doing the same type of scenario with these kings of the earth. The power of God that is on display. Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68. Let me start in verse 1. Psalm 68 in verse 1. Where David's writing here, he says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish in the presence of God. Again, you notice the discrepancy in power between how God compares his power to the, the wickedness at this point that you will have a spirit of power that <laughs> you could see, how does it put it there first? Smoke. There's some smoke. Please go deal with that. Well, I can just create the wind. And enough wind is going to beat enough smoke every time. Oh, or, you know, there's some wax. What do you? How do we get rid of it? How about a fire? <laughs> a big enough fire is going to take care of wax every single time. And we have that opportunity to be like that in the kingdom. Verse 3, But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah and rejoice before him. And then you notice who specifically is this rod of iron for? Or why, why to have a rod of iron? Because it's not just about aggressively, you know, seeking out people to beat with a rod of iron. But it's to protect the defenseless. We find that in verse 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. How many people will still be bound? The Israelite nations might be entirely in captivity. The survivors of the Israelite nations at the beginning of God's kingdom, will they have to be released by one of us bringing out those who are bound into prosperity, immediately starting to march them or transport them in some way, shape, or form down to the promised land? But the rebellious will dwell in a dry land isn't that kind of curious that David describes rebellious people living in a dry land? Because that's not always been the case in the last 6,000 years. 
But you know when it is going to be the case? When are people not going to get rain for sure? And many of you are already aware. I'm not even going to turn there, but we want to jot it down. Zechariah 14. There's going to be some dry lands that don't get rain from people who refuse to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The rebellious will truly live in a dry land. Again, because God's power will dictate that to be so. Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Perhaps a famous one here. Psalm 149. Start in verse 5. It says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings of chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. Try to do that to some of the kings and nobles today. And unless God is protecting you, you will find your life to either be short or very miserable thereafter. But that's the power you're going to have to take care of kings and nobles who deserve to be removed from power. You know, verse 9, to execute them on the on them the written judgment, this honor have all his saints. It's an honor they talk about to have all for the saints to be able to use this power to get rid of unrighteous government. Praise the eternal. In Isaiah 54, let's wrap up power with Isaiah chapter 54, because again, why, why all of this? Why do we need this rod of iron? Why these displays of power? Why does everything we could go and look at in a superhero movie pale in comparison with the power that we will have as spirit beings in the kingdom of God? Well, it's because God has given it to us for a purpose. And let's start in verse 11, Isaiah 54 and verse 11, where Isaiah writes, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, Behold, I lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies and your gates of crystal and your, all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Right? Why is God bringing them out of this into prosperity as we just read? Why is he doing this? So that people and their children can be taught. Taught by God. Taught by the kings and priests that God has appointed in his kingdom. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. All that many of these people have known for three and a half years of horror and terror and death in the great tribulation. They'll now suddenly be far from it, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. But the entire goal, as kind of mentioned there in verse 13, to make sure people are able to be taught. How much education really happens in a concentration camp? in a prisoner of war camp when people are bound 
We will use God's power to alleviate that from the Israelites and from Gentiles as well so that they might be able to learn the fear of the Lord. But power is not the only thing. Let's turn our attention to love. As a spirit being of love, how will you show love? In some ways, this is one that, again, our world can so frequently get wrong. Our world loves to talk about love and, and love wins or love this or love that. And, and usually the way the world almost wants to pervert love today is to basically say, well, I want to do whatever I want to do. And then love means you just accept whatever I'm doing, which flies in the faith, the face of some of the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13. That, for one example, love does not rejoice in iniquity. If somebody's committing iniquity and saying, oh, why aren't you happy for me? Well, that's actually because I love you. That's why I'm not happy. I'm not rejoicing in this iniquity. How is God's love going to be displayed during this time? Let's jump back to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, one of the psalms that is so common among uh, professing Christianity, but certainly famous for a reason. Because it does describe to us here in Psalm 23... Again, a psalm of David. We'll just start at the beginning, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I have to admit, I was drawn to this verse quite a bit because you notice that here's that rod again, right? We talked a lot of with power that it is a rod that we can use to execute justice on kings and on nobles, on the unrighteous who are oppressing people if they have somehow you know, made it into the kingdom and still choose to oppress. But what about people who are trying to be humble, who are learning. And most likely the Israelites at this point have largely been broken, have been humbled deeply. And now this rod, it says it comforts them. God's staff, they recognize that these things, this power was actually a display of power and love combined in some ways. And even though we're separating them a bit today, there is this combination aspect to so many parts of God's spirit. But God's rod was a comfort to King David as he recognized that it was a comfort to the sheep that he was protecting with it as well. And so, in some ways, everything we just talked about was a display of love. However, Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 29, we find that God's love in the kingdom is displayed perhaps most powerfully through healing through taking care, uh, and I, I actually mean healing in a very broad sense here, because there are certainly verses that we'll look at that talk about the healing of limbs and ears and eyes and other parts of the physical body that can easily be destroyed or damaged. But the scriptures also focus so much on the healing of the earth that will happen at that point. Because again, if you go back and you read the trumpet plagues, the bowls of revelation, what percent of mankind is dead? 
And to a certain degree, you might also ask the same type of question about the earth in itself. What percent of the earth is even still habitable? The earth itself has to be healed too. And so it's almost no surprise that in some of these prophecies, especially here in the book of Isaiah, that the scriptures tend to flow back and forth between a description of what God is doing with the nature as well as a description of what he's doing with human beings. And if we return to the human beings one more time, the body is kind of easy to fix. But again, why are we fixing all these things? Why fix the environment? Why fix the human body? Because we're aiming for the mind, to heal the mind and to help the mind to learn the fear of the Lord. So here we are in Isaiah 29. Let's jump down to verse 17. Isaiah 29, verse 17, where Isaiah writes, Is it not yet a very little thing, till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? Right? It starts in this case with the emphasis on the environment. Verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book. Yes, Great for them to be able to hear in general, but there's a specific reason to heal heal people's ears because they need to hear the words of this book. How wonderful for that to be. The eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble, right? That's an attitude. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible is brought to nothing. Kind of what we talked about just with power. The scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore thus says the Eternal, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hollow my name. Right? An indication of what's happening with people. They've seen God's power. Now they're seeing God's love. And it's helping them hollow God's name. And fear. Fear the God of Israel. People will not be confused. That is one of the things I look forward to the most about the kingdom of God, is that they will not come into the kingdom and see all these things happening and be like, was that Allah? Or perhaps evolution? Or Buddha? Uh, was this uh, the Catholic? Was it the Pope? This will not be confusing to people. They will learn to fear the correct, the God of Israel. In verse 24, those also who erred in spirit which is most of mankind, will come to understanding. And those who complained, which is <laughs> a very common trait of mankind as well, uh, those who complained will learn doctrine. We have these entire aspects of love, this healing of the nature, of the body, even of the mind and the, the attitudes that are blessed for learning, fearing the Lord, learning doctrine, coming to understanding, love for the purpose of teaching the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 35 is rightly famous at the, uh, for this time of year. Isaiah 35. Uh, 
Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Eternal, the excellency of our God. And so this fantastic description of the, uh, again, primarily focused on the nature, on the geography in some ways. First, verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. And you notice that these descriptions, weak hands, feeble knees, tend to actually not be as much about your physical hand or physical knees, but about the idea of being fearful-hearted. That this is, again, trying to heal and take care of attitudes and internal things that need to be healed. The things we have modern terms for today, like PTSD for post-traumatic stress disorder. How many people are going to go through the Great Tribulation and might end up diagnosed, in today's terms, with PTSD? And yet here God is trying to address that as well. But the physical stuff gets addressed as well. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb sing, the water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Right In the middle of a verse, it goes right back from our physical bodies, the healing and love displayed there, to the environment. The parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And I can't help myself, let's just go ahead and finish the chapter. Verse 8. A highway shall be there in a road, it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return, right, those who've survived, who now have been freed by the power of God and by his love, they've been healed in part, that they can get all the way back to Jerusalem so that they can come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, that they may obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and signs shall flee away. Now, before I was hired into the ministry, I, I was a public school teacher. And this is not going to shock you. I did not do a scientific study. But this will not shock you to know that I had an easier time teaching students who were loved at home by their parents than students who were not. If a student went home to a loving family, they were able to come and learn the simple lessons I was trying to teach them about history or geography or civics, whatever the topic was that particular day. And if they were not loved at home, they had some other things on their mind than what's important about the ancient Greeks. When people are shown this love, being freed from captivity, being healed of their physical things. And, and can you imagine some of the Israelites almost being described here as being released from a concentration camp and being marched down 
being healed perhaps so that they can march, so that they could even leap all the way down to Jerusalem. And while they're doing it, they're watching the, the nature itself starting to change. Especially the closer and closer they get to Jerusalem. Seeing wildernesses that are no longer that. And how much, as we saw in verses 3 and 4, that even figurative language for weak hands, feeble knees, fearful hearts, that that starts to be healed as well. And God's love does all of this so that they can learn. Let's just do one more for this. I have a couple more verses in this section, but let's just do one more. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And we'll go to verse 17. Isaiah 41 and verse 17. Where it says, The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the Lord of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will, uh, I will plant in the wilderness in cedar and acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree, and I will sell, I will set in the desert the cypress tree, the pine and the box tree together. It's interesting again how so much of this is actually focused on the physical nature. Um, uh, you know, there's a little bit of mention of people being thirsty, but primarily he's talking about what he's doing with the physical landscape. But it's all for the purpose, right? The purpose that verse 20 elaborates for us, where it says that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. I love that phrase. Consider and understand together. That mankind will be able to look at what is happening and to take in what is undoubtedly the biggest change they have ever seen in their life from being on the brink of worldwide extinction to seeing health and healing and a nature that is just completely rebounding from a situation you might remember in Matthew 24 is described as a situation that no flesh was going to be spared from to suddenly blossoming and blooming in pools of water and amazing trees. And so much that people will actually consider and understand together. And they might very well point back and say, that's what those two witnesses were talking about. That's what those, that, what, what, what were they, that some church of God thing? Those, those ones who we were so mad at right before all this started. That's what they were talking about. And they'll consider and understand together. Why did we know? Not because we're special. Not because we somehow had the mindset to be able to just look ourselves into the Bible. But because God opened our minds and now He's doing the same thing for them. Providing them the evidence that the hand of the Lord has done this. We are privileged to know that He's going to do it now. Even if that day is not today. 
The Holy One of Israel has created it. God's love will help people to know and understand together. And the final description we found of the Holy Spirit after power and love was of a sound mind. And how wonderful to be able to rule with a sound mind. We might sometimes wonder that about some of the people in power today. In fact, it's almost become an American pastime to question the soundness of mind of various uh, presidents that we have. The opposition party loves to do that, uh, at least for the last couple of presidents that we've had. Whichever party is not in power uh, is uh, usually more than happy to question that. As spirit beings, we will have a sound mind. But hopefully we will also show that this is helping mankind have a sound mind as well. We've already kind of seen that, just even in the last passage in Isaiah 41, that they're actually going to be able to consider and understand together an indication of a sound mind coming to mankind. To some degree, this might even be a quick call back to the Day of Atonement. Why get rid of Satan? Because you cannot purely have a sound mind when he is the prince of the power of the air gnawing at you. It's something we have to resist today and something that God will completely remove to help mankind do it within his kingdom. Let's go to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, and we'll go ahead and start in verse 8. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Where he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And now that's possible, right? Now that the power has been displayed, the love has been displayed, now mankind can see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want to those who fear Him. Are you surprised that we find another verse about the fear of the Lord here? <laughs> of course not. The fear the Lord, you as saints, there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the eternal shall not lack any good thing. Now you notice what, what immediately the shift is here as people get to enjoy the blessings of God's power and God's love. Verse 11 says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I have loved part of this scripture because he even mentions that, you know, I will teach you the fear of the Lord there in verse 11. That's what uh, this psalm is going to mention. And then verses 12 and 13 and 14 mention some of those things. If you want to know, like, what the fear of the Lord is, and it's not necessarily been the focus of this entire sermon, but here's three verses you can start with. Especially verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You do those things and you'll start having the fear of the Lord. Look for the other scriptures. You can certainly look at 12 and 13 as well there. But not only the blessing of fearing the Lord, but the instruction that comes. And part of even what that instruction will be, instruction that we should be taking into our own lives today, that we look forward to being able to share with others, 
in the kingdom of God. In Psalm 32, a couple pages back, at least in my Bible, a couple pages back. Psalm 32, verse 8. Psalm 32, verse 8. Where he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And I hope we kind of realize that this is part of what God wants from us today. And part of how we are going to try to teach the fear of the Lord then is to show people this is why you want to do it. We're, God did not you know, take us today and make us robots to just automatically obey him. He wants us to choose him. And that's part of what our challenge will be in the kingdom of God, is that not that we're going to take mankind and turn them into a bunch of God-fearing robots, but that we might actually be able to teach them to understand why the fear of the Lord is good. Yet God has the power to put a bit in all of our mouths and turn us around however he wants us to, and we could have no understanding of any of it. But he's letting us know that he wants us to be instructed and not be like the horse or the mule. Verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, I got to teach economics for a couple of years. And, and the, one of the phrases that's frequently mentioned in economics is, is when you're making a choice, every choice has costs and benefits. Every choice has costs and benefits. And so I can't help but sometimes look at a verse like this and almost think, are we prepared to show that the benefits of keeping God's way of life outweigh the costs? That you get so many benefits from learning the fear of the Lord. You get so many benefits by, not, by, by, by simply choosing it. And we get them during this age. This age comes with a few more costs also comes with a few more benefits. Because all the people we'll be teaching it to, you know one benefit they can never have? They can never be in the first resurrection. That, that, that time will have passed. Now they can still be in the family of God, and there's still many reasons that they should choose the fear of the Lord and choose these things. But one benefit is off the table because that time will have come and gone. But we also have more costs. <laughs> You have Satan the devil active in your lives right now as he tries to influence each of us. And thankfully, he'll be put away during this time. Back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 32, I think it gives us a hint as to one of the uh, ways that we'll be able to encourage a sound mind. This, of course, is just in some ways one of my other favorite millennial passages, excuse me, millennial passages. And therefore, it kind of lets us know uh, something I think that hints very strongly as to why people might be able to have more of a sound mind. Isaiah 32, verse 16. Isaiah 32, down in verse 16. Where he says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever.
I love the emphasis on quietness. We live in a noisy world, especially here in the United States. And it's and, and unfortunately, it's an addictive noise. If you turn on a screen, how long does it take you to turn it back off? Now, many of you might very well be watching this on a screen right now, but when you're done with this, do you turn off the computer or the TV or the tablet and look back to your Bible, look up these scriptures, meditate on what we've talked about today, or do we flip over to the news? Now, maybe some of you will find a new sermon or something else that you want to watch uh, as we as we go through here. But here we have the emphasis on quietness. And most of us, I think, if we're honest, we try to learn, we learn the best when, when we have quiet. How, how would a normal church service go? You might even think about that. Then when we have a normal church service, do we try to play music while the speaker is speaking? Paul even had to address the Corinthians, uh, I believe, well, I forget exactly which chapter in 1 Corinthians, that he basically said, you have to have one person speak at a time. <laughs> it's too crazy. It, it, no one gets anything out of it if more than one person is speaking at a time, given an indication of what struggles that church was having. And here we're told that quietness will be part of God's kingdom. In fact, even in verse 18, it lets us know that my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Places to pause, to think, to think deeply about things. To not be distracted by the next buzz on our phone, the next breaking news story that may or may not mean anything. I've mentioned, obviously, that I'm very curious if even by the end of the sermon, will there be an update for me here today about what's happening on the border between Russia and Ukraine? But there's a good chance that what's on my phone right now is breaking news about a celebrity scandal or about an athlete who did something or something that undoubtedly means something to the people involved. But is it really national important breaking news? I suppose for the uh, people who want to engage my attention on my phone, it clearly is. But there'll be a lot more quietness in God's kingdom. And hopefully that's something you can embrace during this Feast of Tabernacles. How much time do you have left this feast? Depending on when you're listening to this, you might have the better part of a week, maybe even a full week left. Are you going to embrace times of quietness at the feast to help picture this part of the millennium? It can be easy for a feast to be very noisy. It can be easy to not meditate at all during the feast. Will you make sure in particular that you keep the screens turned off unless you're engaged with the Bible or it being explained in messages like this? quietness. Such a benefit to learning, such a benefit to having a sound mind. Now Isaiah chapter 2, one of the famous scriptures here, Isaiah chapter 2, has this very famous uh, description. Isaiah 2 uh, in verse 2, 
where it lets us know that now people, that their minds have become sound enough that they are actually the ones seeking education. Uh, Isaiah 2, verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Uh, famous scriptures that by all likelihood you'll hear in other messages at the feast. And, but verse 3, let's, let's slow down a little bit for verse 3, because you notice that many people shall come and say, or I'm sorry, yeah, many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. What's interesting is that because of God's power, and then because of his love, that mankind itself is starting to have a soundness of mind. The oppressors have been removed. And, and maybe this is still a Gentile nation who is looking at the situation going, they've got rain. They're, they're, their deaf people have been healed. They're, they're not even terrified anymore, and they were just in concentration camps. Maybe we should go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. <laughs> we should probably give this a shot. Something is up here. And especially when you think that Satan is no longer pouring out his agenda into their ears anymore. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And you notice in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. That people will be rebuked, corrected. Might be a synonym there. And some of that will be done through that rod of iron we've already talked about. And some of it's going to be that when you learn the law of God, you get corrected. All of us in the spring of every year, have a chance to correct ourselves as we examine ourselves for Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, it talks about if you would judge yourselves, you would not be judged. And you might switch it out with the synonym there. If you would just go ahead and correct yourself, God doesn't have to correct you. He gives us that chance to do it ourselves. But now he is helping the nations to be corrected, to be rebuked. A big part of that is making sure that wars are over. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so a time where mankind's soundness of mind is developing so much that they actually finally choose to come to God to learn from him. You know, that they actually would want for him to teach us his ways. How many people do you see do that today? <laughs> yeah, I can almost imagine teaching my seventh graders and be like, guess what, kiddos, tomorrow, your choice as to whether you're going to be here or not. I, I just kind of wonder how many of them would have shown up the next day uh, to come and voluntarily learn a lesson. And, and here you actually have adults who can be just as stubborn as teens at times, that they they would actually choose it. They would actually choose to go up to the house of the Lord. Now, I do love how there is this description of silence, uh, or maybe not silence, but quietness. Quietness was uh, the word used there back in Isaiah 32. 
and how people are learning to have the sound mind. Well, when you get to uh, Isaiah 52, I do think we should give at least a little bit of credit to one of the exceptions here. Isaiah 52, in verse 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices shall they sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm and the eyes of all his nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There might be quietness. But how often are you overwhelmed with joy to the point that you end up breaking forth into it? Breaking forth into joy because of the goodness of God, because of this spirit, the the spirit of God that we get to have to try to use during this life of power and love and a sound mind and a spirit that we then get to take and try to help mankind to use that power and love and sound mind to guide them to the fear of the Lord. And yet there will be quietness. There will be quietness. But there's also breaking forth into joy. Uh, Perhaps another example is in Isaiah 55, where, again, it's sometimes fascinating to me that uh, the the description of of what mankind is going through uh, uh, has has a similar path to what's happening with uh, the physical geography, that in the same way that both suffer, uh, in the great tribulation and the day of the Lord, and then both get healed at the returning of Jesus Christ, and now both are also uh, experiencing this uh, uh, this this outburst of joy that uh, we just were in Isaiah 52, where the people are breaking forth into joy. Well, here in Isaiah 55 verses 12 and 13, notice how God describes the joy being from the nature from the geography, from things that we we see uh, in the natural world. Verse 12, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. Again, that starts with the emphasis on human beings. But then the mountains and hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Even somehow nature is breaking forth into joy at the rule and at the kingdom of God that is being set up. And I I sometimes, I can understand some of the figurative language that I'm reading here where I can almost, I can almost, you know, get the idea of that, um, uh, you know, the, the the trees clapping their hands, almost as if, you know, the, their branches and all the, the twigs and everything are, are almost coming together in, in claps. I can, you know, maybe picture that in my mind's eye. Uh, what a, what a, uh, 
A singing mountain looks like I have a, a little bit harder time with that one. I, I don't know if I can quite picture that of a, you know, some type of mountain that's, you know, <laughs> opening up and just singing praises to God. Maybe it is just figurative and I don't need to stress out too much about it. But the idea that they would just break forth into singing. And I've tried to think of when have I broken forth into joy before. And I will admit it's petty. And those of you who know me will know what's coming. But I do like American football. And if you've ever seen American football, you know that the general sense is that you have 11 guys on offense and 11 guys on defense. And they line up in a couple lines. And then they run into each other. And the guy with the ball falls down. And then they stand up and they do it all over again. And that's what happens most plays. But every now and then, the offense who has the ball, everybody hits their blocks. And the running back, who looks like he's going to run and immediately get hit and everybody's going to fall down again, somehow slips through the line. And suddenly, he is off to the races. And as a fan, you watch it and you realize this is not a normal play. And even though he's got 30 yards to go to get into the end zone and score a touchdown... You can't help it because you can see what is about to happen and you just have to break forth into joy and jump up and shout for joy, yelling at the TV, go run, as if the running back has forgotten what his job is. But he is about to take off and run for the end zone. And something that was not joyful five seconds ago, one play ago, whatever, is suddenly joyous and breaking forth into joy. You might have a better personal example, and I would encourage you to think of what that might be in your own life. Have you ever prayed yourself? There, there have been times that I've felt myself so joyful in prayers, but it's not every day. And I keep hoping that that would be something I can develop more of. And it's something I look forward to where it's all of us together singing praises to our God. Even, maybe it's only figurative, but what it really seems is that somehow nature is on a parallel path with us. And maybe it's just providing the backup lyrics or something, you know, but somehow is also breaking forth into joy. And brethren, why do we do it? So that mankind is converted. So that mankind sees that God's way, the fear of the Lord, really is the way that brings blessings. So many scriptures. <laughs> I have to encourage you to go and do some more study on your own. Because there are so many scriptures that talk about this joyous time. This time where the humanity will be converted because it will have kings and priests ruling over it, guiding it towards the fear of the Lord. And let's conclude where we started today in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Where he reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. 
Brethren, let's use that spirit today during this age with the little ways we can in our own life. The things that we have control of right now are so much smaller in magnitude and size and importance. But God promises us that if we're faithful in what is little, we can be faithful in what is much. And this Feast of Tabernacles gives us an opportunity to say that is much. That is when having much power, love, and sound mind cannot simply be for us to improve our own lives, but for us to help all of mankind learn the fear of the Lord and be converted and to enjoy the blessings of living God's way of life. So brethren, let's take this opportunity at the Feast of Tabernacles to pray that God would give us more spirit now so that we can use it then, so we can be joyful at this feast, knowing that God has promised us power, love, and a sound mind.